0: Check, 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 check. Hi, I'm Eugenia McGuire and welcome to the Parenting Human Beings podcast. Thank you for listening. Recently, I was humbled and privileged to host and create the Into the Heart of Trauma Conference in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, from April 8th to 10th in 2019, which featured Dr. Gordon Newfeld and nine other presenters over the three days. In this podcast episode, I release a lecture that I did at the conference on April 10th entitled Into the Heart of Suicide where I presented on the topic of suicide primarily through the lens of Dr. Neufeld's attachment-based developmental paradigm while weaving my personal journey and insights throughout and sharing how I have been touched by suicide and domestic violence in my family of origin and found healing with the help of my mentors. So... Felicia is correct in saying that this is the first time that I have touched on this particular topic of suicide. Um, I've done, as a facilitator through the Newfeld Institute and um, through my job in municipal government, part of my role was to do parenting workshops, so I've done a fair amount of workshops based on attachment theory, that are offerings to parents, but never have I delved into the topic of suicide, which is very dear to my heart, which I'll explain when I tell you my story or a bit of my story. Um, But who I am is, uh, I'm a social worker and um, I care deeply about the work of Dr. Gordon Neufeld, hence my um, passion to bring him here. Um, I draw upon much of his work, um, that's the lens or the paradigm through which I interpret reality, primarily. uh, That and through um, the lens of uh, some of the other work that I've done with my teachers, Marvin Shannon Harwood, who are also here, and Shannon, who's speaking next after me. Um, I've had a lot of great mentors uh, over the years, and individuals. Um, I think of Gordon Neufeld and his model of attachment where he explains that attachment is hierarchical, that uh, we are so peer oriented in our culture that we don't even realize it, even as adults. uh, Children are peer oriented, which is a huge problem. That's the premise of his book, Hold On To Your Kids. But even as adults, we are deeply peer oriented because we have been for so many generations that we don't even realize how desperately we are in need of elders elders and mentors and people who are just older than us, who are wiser than us, who have walked before us. And um, I would go so far as to say even a connection with the ancestors, those who came before us in in that realm. So I've luckily or uh, miraculously, magically tapped into uh, finding these mentors who have been uh, guides for me on my journey. Uh, So as I mentioned, I am a social worker. I was a foster parent, actually, at the age of 23. (laughs) Talk about blind leading the blind. Um, There was very little training, um, although I was taken to a foster parent retreat when I started that. um, And it was designed to help foster parents gain cultural awareness and Um, because they were indigenous children who were in my care. And that was actually the first time um, that I was taken into ceremony. And it was very, it wasn't a deeply profound ceremony or the type of ceremony where you you know, like Ernestina described, where you uh, fast for days with no food and water on the mountainside. it wasn't wasn't anything like that. It was just just a sort of light ceremony offered by the elder, because that's how elders work. they They do ceremony. they uh, they wouldn't conceive to have a retreat and teach people without doing ceremony. Um, but it was this simple ceremony where the elder um, there was food and there was a feast, and the elder came up to each one of us, and he tied a green ribbon around our wrist, and he said, be your authentic self. And he did this very ceremonially and um, to each of us. And I was just really touched by that. And I thought, there's something going on here. Because I grew up in a um, a very racially-fueled, town where there was tension between uh, native people and white people, and I, I didn't realize, even though I grew up nine kilometers from Muscoachee's and there was a reserve road right behind me, I didn't realize anything about, I hadn't experienced, in a good way, anything about um, the culture, Cree culture. And this elder said, be your authentic self, and he touched something in me, and I wore that, that green ribbon around my wrist, for years and years, and I was uh, sewing something on my sewing machine, and I caught the, the ribbon in the, the built-in cutter that's in the sewing machine, and I cut it three-quarters of the way through, and it was hanging on by a thread. <laughs> and so I wore that for another year as it hung on by a thread. <laughs> And eventually it released and I just kind of blessed it. But I do feel that that is energetically still bound to my wrist. And that's what started me on a path of seeking mentorship because I was very peer-oriented myself. I thought the answer was in friendship. Um, My family system of hierarchy was dysfunctional. So um, that led me to seek um, in ways that I didn't even... I didn't realize what I was missing until I was touched by that individual. So I was a foster parent for many years, I also worked in reunification homes. So I was in a parenting type role, or at least for periods of time, uh, I was the primary caregiver to a number of children. So I have experienced attachment in that context. I remember the first time um, I was with a two-year-old, I was working in a reunification home, and this. Um, toddlers, parents were not able to, they were not able to reunify the family. So this child was essentially in our care waiting for the foster system to find her a new family and for that whole process to um, take place. So I would take care of this child every day and we became very deeply attached. And I remember her sitting on my lap and we were just staring into each other's eyes and we would do this for hours by this time, we would, sometimes for hours per day, we would just stare at each other, and she would sit on my lap, and we would just gaze into each other's eyes, and I hadn't found Gordon Neufeld yet, but I'd started reading books in the field, Dan Siegel has a number of books I've read, and, and other authors, and I knew the word attachment, and I remember thinking, oh my God, this is attachment, this is what it feels like. And I just remember having this flood, and I guess it's oxytocin if you wanna look at it from that chemical lens, but I just felt flooded over my entire body, um, just with these, Just I felt like I was covered in bliss molecules, and I just thought, this is attachment, that's what it is, this is what they're talking about, and I contemplated adopting that child. <laughs> um, but it wasn't the stage of life where I was at. Um, but I have had these, exper- these parent, ish, parent-like, uh, caregiver type of attachment experiences in my life. So that's kind of where I draw from in terms of the parenting education that I offer. But today I'm going to offer what I have uncovered in terms of making sense of suicide. What, and I'm going to weave my story throughout as an example. But what this workshop or session is not, it is not a suicide intervention workshop. Although suicide intervention workshops, I believe are highly valuable, I've taken the ASSIST, that's an acronym, I don't know what it means, (laughs) Um, but the ASSIST training here in Edmonton, and I know they offer it elsewhere, I've taken that training many times over the years, and it is, it's is—it's a beautiful training. Uh, the last time I took it, there was an amazing individual who was running that training, and he, he just totally got it. Um, but that's just not what this workshop is. It's not a suicide intervention workshop. If you've never taken a suicide intervention workshop, I would highly recommend it. Uh, the types of skills that you gain just communication-wide um, communication-wise, I think are valuable even outside of the context of de-escalating someone who is um, on the brink of suicide. Just in general, it's um, I found it to be a communication 101 type of training. So highly valuable, but not what we'll be um, talking about here, as I mentioned. So I remembered this quote um, that maybe Stories are just data with a soul. And I had to look it up and, and realize that, oh, it was Brene Brown who said that. Uh, it felt like an older quote or something. I thought maybe it came from, uh, from some sort of ancient mystic or something, but um, it's Brene, according to the internet, it's Brene Brown who has said this. And um, that's, that's my intention is, is to offer the data from my story um, to complement the theory um, much of which i've'm drawing from dr. Gordon newfeld's theory of attachment um, to really unpack and make sense of um, from a philosophical and a theoretical standpoint, just to make sense of suicide and and Gordon newfeld did talk uh, he touched on it um, when he was here on Monday. So this is a picture of i uh, actually I was digging through my pictures and I barely have any photographs of my mom. My mother hated being photographed. And it's such a shame because I have such few photographs. And I'm sorry about the quality of these, but they're actually photos of photos because they're they're quite old. Um, but that is the most recent photograph in the left corner that I could find of my mother. And my mother and my father, uh, and that's me. Um, when I was first born. And this is a a picture of my father and my sister and I. So we were a nuclear family, uh, what I thought or believed at the time to be a typical nuclear family in the 80s. And the reason why suicide is so dear to my heart and that I needed to make sense of it was because my mother, when I was 20 years old, died by suicide and it came as a complete shock to me. And this was a surprise because I was the epitome of an alpha child, as, as Dr. Gordon Neufeld explains, the alpha child. He touched on the material, um, the alpha instincts, but I was a child who just needed to know everything. and needed to make sense of everything and needed to control things and run things and I was in the lead and I was alpha by defense and alpha by default. Um, There was no buddy, for the most part, taking care of me in a way that um, a child needs. So I just, my own instincts rose and I said, oh well I guess I'm taking care of myself. Without conscious awareness, of course, these instincts just rose to the occasion and um, my mother was in a very, very dependent mode, and so she would tell me a lot of things. Um, I was very parentified with my sister, um, and I, would t- I was moved to take care of my mother. And so I was very surprised that she didn't hadn't told me of her suicidal intent. Uh, the only person she told was my father, who was very much incapable of acting on that information In in any sort of meaningful way, he didn't reach out. Um, my father was by definition, um, he had the preschooler syndrome, what Gordon Neufeld calls the preschooler syndrome. He has a rich history of trauma. Um, I first, When I first uncovered material about narcissistic personality disorder and narcissism, I, the light bulbs just went off um, because I thought, that's my dad. <laughs> to a, to a T, that describes my father. I always used to call him bipolar when I was a child because I didn't know what bipolar meant. I thought that bipolar just meant that you had 2 bipoles bi-poles and you would kind of swing between the two because he was very volatile, he would switch moods. He was, in essence, a toddler developmentally, right? If we think about what a toddler is supposed to be like, how they are, they are meant to pendulum swing. They are meant to um, move from complete and utter frustration and, and tantruming um, to, co- you know, getting it out. And then they move in, they swing, and they pendulum swing to the other side, and then they're full of joy and everything's fine. Um, as, a, as a child, of course, having a father that acted this way it was very terrifying, right? So he had a very rich trauma history himself that was unresolved. Uh, he simply wasn't capable of being a parent. Um, my mother, who, as I mentioned, was very, very dependent. Her, her instincts to take care of uh, were just not there. She was, I found this out as well after her death, but my mother was um, got pregnant at age 16, And I've heard this story, it was quite common in the 60s, right? They didn't have information. Um, Information about birth control and whatnot was not widespread. She came from a good Christian home, an evangelical Christian home. And she got pregnant and was essentially forced to drop out of grade 10 in high school. And how her best friend described the situation to me was that her parents were so ashamed of this and so ashamed that they had gone wrong and that their um, their good Christian girl had gotten pregnant that they they kind of hid her away in the basement. and they kind of just wanted it to go away. So they they pulled her out of school. they it sounded to me as though she was coerced into giving the child up for adoption. I'm sure she she had a lot of mixed feelings about that. Um, and so this was a wound that compounded upon a foundation of a lack of belonging. My mom said that she never quite fit with her family. So at 18, when she met my father at Ranchman's Bar in Calgary, it still exists, if if any of you have been there, it's on McLeod Trail. After all these years, it's a country bar, Uh, my mother lived in Calgary and she somehow liked country music, I, I guess that is a, sort of a Southern Alberta thing, but um, ranchman's bar in Calgary, she meets my father at age 18, and quickly, within a few months, gets pregnant with me. And so in her attempt to keep me, she all of a sudden gets married, and before before giving birth they get eloped. This is actually their wedding photo, and that's me. And Well, maybe I was born, I'm not quite sure about those pieces. But she quickly got married and moved in with my dad, and he kind of ushered her off to central, more central uh, northern Alberta, rather, um, onto a farm. So very, very isolated, away from her natural um, attachment system, which was fairly broken in the first place. And, And there she was, 18 years old, with a young infant, I'm thinking about Jennifer's presentation today. I can't imagine um, what my mother went through. I don't know what she went through in terms of of her birthing experience, but I can imagine that it was not a very empowered birth, right, it was a medicalized birth. So there she was. And that sort of sets the stage for what happened um, throughout her life as she became more and more isolated, and just more and more entrenched into the dynamic of domestic violence. Because somebody with a deeply rich, unresolved trauma history, who's narcissistic, can't not be violent. And I don't see my father as you know, having the intention to have done this or created this within his family, but just his lack of maturity, um, that's what toddlers do. Right? And that's where he was at developmentally. So it was, it was a busy childhood. It was intense. It was volatile. It was scary. Um, my father was, was very manic as well. He had multiple full-time jobs at any given point. We ran a farm. So it was just constantly work, work, work. There were, we were very entrenched in the work mode. And we kind of all just had to work. So this was the, this was the scene um, that my mother spent the remainder of her adult lives in. Um, So I I commend you for being interested in the topic of suicide, or maybe you're just here because you're interested in the other topics. Um, But thank you for being here to to talk about such a heavy topic. Of Of all the emotions, suicidal urges are the ones that freak us out the most, that we consider to be so bad, right? And if we think about as practitioners, even if somebody comes to us um, expressing suicidal urges, what do we do? Well, if we have our alpha instincts about us in a huge way, we rise to that occasion. Um, But it's, it's dysregulating, right? It alarms us, oh no, oh no. This is bad. You're suicidal. This is really bad. I can't have you dying on my watch. Even if it's our friend, if it's our child, there's nothing that alarms us more than the expression of suicidal urges or the thought of suicide. Right? So it's a heavy, heavy topic. Um, And I commend you for for being willing to listen. Um, But I'm gonna argue that Suicidal urges, just like all emotions, are part of a set of emotions that are built in, that are hardwired into our nervous system to take care of us. So let's go back to the definition of attachment. You've been hearing about attachment um, for a few days now, especially with Gordon, right? But Gordon says, it's that drive or relationship characterized by the pursuit and preservation of closeness. So we are driven, we are instinctively driven, to be close, to pursue closeness, he talked about pursuit, intensified pursuit, but also to preserve closeness. So if we, our nervous system is scanning all of the time for all of the ways that we could potentially, hypothetically, Um, lose contact and closeness, right? So we're very, very attuned to that. All of our instincts are geared towards the pursuit and preservation of closeness. I think you can appreciate that um, after hearing Gordon speak. He also says that for the mammal, attachment is synonymous with survival. That because our ability to survive relies upon being taken care of unlike other animals or let's say reptiles, for instance, where uh, they can lay an egg and that egg can uh, hatch and off they go, right? Off the reptile goes. Um, Human beings are complicated, as Jennifer said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just um, keep them in utero for longer because we're that helpless we would literally die if we are not taken care of. So attachment, um, I would even say that, uh, and probably Gordon would agree with me, that attachment is not only synonymous and equal to survival, but that our attachment instincts are greater than our survival instincts. Right? So that is why suicide, in a nutshell, is possible, is because our attachment instincts are greater than or equal to our survival instincts. We can actually override our survival instincts or that instinct to live if we are wounded so greatly within our attachment relationships, right? And a lot of people have been expressed confusion around that, where, I I don't understand. I remember my dad saying when my mom died, I don't understand. People go through war, people go through all this kind of these terrible things, and yet they persevere, and yet they have this instinct to survive. Where were her instincts to survive? Of course, my dad didn't understand anything about attachment, and when he said that at the time of her death, I, I didn't know either. I had no idea. But it makes sense if we know what we know about attachment. So Gordon talked about what we do when there's a natural disaster, right? A hurricane or some sort of um, disaster. We don't run around saying, where's the food? Where's the water? I need to secure my life. We run around and say, and we say, where's grandma? Where's my wife? Where's my child? Where's dad? And we'll even go into dangerous situations into a burning building, um, for instance, in order to save our loved ones. Because our instinct to attach is much greater than our instinct to survive. So if we kind of take the opposite of that, right, Gordon touched on this on Monday, that if our instinct to attach is equal to our survival instincts, then the threat, of course, is separation, right? When he talked about um, the stress, the stress system in our brain, that at the heart of that is separation. He also talked about the levels of attachment, and I've um, put this a little bit differently. It's not his slide, um, but it is his, his material there. He talked about how we are designed developmentally to attach in these different ways over time if conditions are optimal. development, we are meant to um, and designed by nature to gain different ways to be close because life must go on, right? We can't, um, if we could only survive by being close through the senses, physically being with those who are taking care of us, then we wouldn't be able to continue on as a species, right? We're meant to become viable, independent, separate beings and we do that as development unfolds into connecting through sameness, into connecting through loyalty and belonging, belonging to a family, um, through significance, through mattering to, through emotional intimacy, and by being known, right? And in that way, attachment transcends death. And and I heard Sarah give beautiful examples of that yesterday. She talked about having conversations with her mother, right? She talked about calling up her dad and saying, well, mom says, (laughs) Right? Because attachment transcends death. And if I think about, you know, uh, many traditions of indigenous people, how they connect to their ancestors. Right? Attachment transcends death. So if we look at all the ways that we connect, we can also think of all the ways that we are able to be wounded. Right? if we're connecting through sameness and we identify ourselves as being the same as somebody who we love and care about and are attached to, and they say to us, wow, we're just so different. I don't understand you. Or, oh, geez, we're just totally different. That can be wounding. If you're you're attached at a deeper level, you can have room for these differences, right? I have my thoughts, you have yours, and together we relate, and that's psychological intimacy. But if, if the person is a young child, or an immature being who connects through sameness, then that's very deeply wounding, right? Um, loyalty and belonging, that's developmentally at the level of about a three-year-old, right? You, you know, the young child or infant, uh, not infant, but young toddler who says, my mummy? The perfect example is a YouTube video, and if you Google poked me in the heart, You'll find it. And it's these little three, four year old children, presumably in a daycare, um, arguing with each other. And the one says, My mummy says it's raining. And the other one says, Well, my mummy says it's spwinkling. And they proceed to argue back and forth, No, it's waning. No, it's spwinkling. <laughs> in their little toddler voices. And you just see, and it's adorable because the one eventually pokes the other one in the chest and the little boy says, you poked me in the heart. (laughs) And it's so precious and I think that's why it went viral is because he said, you poked me in the heart and it was so precious. But what I saw was the instincts being moved to belong and be loyal to, right? They weren't capable of a rational conversation. They weren't having a debate about whether it was sprinkling or raining. They were just driven to be loyal. Well, my mummy says it's this, so that's reality. That's all I know. I only know myself through my attachments and my mummy says it's raining, so I'm gonna poke you in the heart. (laughs) (laughs) But when you understand through the instincts, then you, you, you know how to respond appropriately, right? It, it starts to make sense when you're dealing with young children that reason isn't going to solve this. They're not, they're not trying to figure out whether it's sprinkling or raining here. Um, significance, really mattering too. It's very vulnerable. If someone that we're deeply attached to can't, as Gordon says, invite us to exist in their presence, I think about my mother, could she afford to be vulnerable enough? to be seen in my dad's eyes as mattering? No, she couldn't. She had to be defended against that. She had to get her attachment needs met in the less vulnerable ways. She had to hang out in the sensory level, in the level of sameness, in the level of loyalty and belonging. She had to agree with my dad or it was dangerous. She had to be on his side She couldn't tell anybody. When I think about secrecy in domestic violence situations, and people go, why didn't you tell anybody? Why didn't you reach out for help? Well, if someone is getting their attachment needs, and remember, this is at the level of survival, this is not just a luxury, oh, I think I'll get my attachment needs met. This is at the level of survival. If someone is getting their attachment needs met, through these more superficial forms of attachment, of course it wouldn't feel right to go telling everyone that the source of your attachment is also the source of your wounds. Right? You have to be loyal to that person. And furthermore, what Gordon talks about, um, or he talked about on Monday with domestic violence to, to help make sense of that, What happens when we're under stress to our need for attachment? Does it increase or decrease? It increases, right? So if you are in a situation of violence, and that is um, the everyday existence, which was of my mother, um, her need for attachment increased. And what also happens um, in situations of disasters, of stress, um, just in general, whether that's if one is living in a domestic violence situation or a civil war, I think of a Bubakar situation and how their family had to really flock together. He said, that's the third or the fourth, that's the fourth F, flock, right? They, when there was bombs going off in their city, what did they do? They collected their family. They didn't say, oh, yeah, okay, uh, I'll see you when you get home. They said, get home now. So we need, um, we, we move to the more superficial levels of attachment when there is an increased stress. That, in combination with our increased need for attachment, just creates a si- situation of trappedness. And I think about, uh, for years and years when I was a child, um, and this is, So sad for me to think about now as an adult that as a child I used to actually beg my mother to take us and leave. I used to say, it's okay, we can go on welfare, alpha child, of course I had all the answers, I had the solutions. We can go on welfare and we can live in those townhouses. (laughs) It's okay, we'll be okay, just leave. Um, But she couldn't and I understand that now. I understand why she couldn't right, and of course Gordon offered the solution for that, is that they need external attachments. Telling someone to leave, telling them to pack a bag, and oh, you know, just, just go down to the women's shelter where you don't know a soul. I mean, that's not where their instincts are going to take them, right? Our instincts drive us into the arms of our attachments, and sometimes the source of those attachments, are also the source of those wounds, which is where it gets complicated in terms of nature's design. So, Dr. Gordon Neufeld did have this slide in his presentation. I don't know if you remember it. It was sort of embedded within other slides. Um, But I'm pulling it out here um, for us to have a look at um, suicidal ideation and self-attack. He normalizes this in the context of frustration, right? Frustration energy comes up. When does it come up? Do you remember from Monday? When does frustration arise in the system? Anybody remember? Sorry? when situations are futile, right? When things don't work. That futility doesn't necessarily sink in, right? But frustration arises as an answer. It has a job to do. It's hardwired into the nervous system because it's meant to move us to change things that aren't working. I love what Dr. Gordon Neufeld says um, about the change makers. He says, you know, think of Gandhi or think of Mother Teresa or think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or anybody who's made change in our society, they were deeply frustrated individuals. It's just they had integrated functioning and they did it in a civilized and diplomatic way. A toddler can't do that, but they can throw their body down and have a tantrum. But we all have frustration and we can't pathologize it. Oh, don't be mad. Right, we can't pathologize it because it's there for a very good reason. Um, when it comes out and erupts and is discharged, it can take these forms, right, when it's not integrated, when it's not mixed with other things, um, when the organism is a very immature being or is defended, um, defended against their adaptation, right? So so suicidal ideation and self-attack are just one manifestation of underlying frustration. He talked about, uh, Dr. Gordon Neufeld talked about adaptation, and I believe he offered this traffic circle model and kind of unpacked it. Um, so it's, it's a model to help us make sense of aggression and to help us make sense of adaptation. He talked about frustration coming up in the nervous system. It moves us to change, right? When something is not working, we are meant to be moved to change it. However... <laughs> we encounter many futilities and can't change the things that don't work um, often. So there's a, there's a couple of other options that nature has designed for us. We can discharge it through um, attack or aggression. Um, that, that's that volcano we just looked at. Um, or, you know, as a, as a last resort um, or as another option, we can, we can also adapt, right? And what in, in a nutshell is the essence of adaptation? What carries us through To the other side, tears, yes, thank you. Um, So tears are meant to drain, Gordon talks about mad to sad, mad to sad, right? It has to sink in, oh, it didn't work, you know? I tried to have this relationship, I was 18, I'm thinking about my mother here, I was 18 years old and I, for very good reason, had to flee my family and, and have my child. But was that working for her five, ten years down the line? No, it wasn't. It wasn't working at all. So there was a great deal of frustration in her system. Um, She would be moved to change it, but as I kind of explained before, right, the dynamics that were at play that were trapping her in that dynamic um, were kind of getting in the way of her ability to change it. Right. So given her defendedness, she had all of these defenses, she had to have defenses in order to live with my dad. He was very violent, he was very mean. As you, if you think about a young child, they just kind of say what's on their mind, right? Um, my dad would blame us for things, like cows going the wrong way, <laughs> they don't go in the gate, it's your fault, kind of thing, right? Um, so she... she wasn't able to adapt, she wasn't able to find her tears, it wasn't safe to have her tears with her oppressor. Um, She had many, many layers of defenses. Um, So you can see how that outlet, that um, pathway would have been blocked in her. So where is frustration meant to go? Where can it go? Well given that my mom had a greater level of maturity than my father. My mother was very kind. She never ever wanted to hurt anybody. And she did have the capacity and the functioning, not just to, to let her frustration or discharge it on us. Um, so she had mixed feelings, as Gordon talked about. Part of her was frustrated, but part of her cared deeply about her children and her family and her life. And so she wasn't able to just, to just let that frustration out I don't think I ever saw my mom have a tantrum uh, once, unfortunately. (laughs) Maybe she needed to have a, a bit of a tantrum to get some of that out. But when it's got nowhere to go, where can it go but to be directed back at the self, right? The energy has to move. It's an electrical energy of emotion in the brain, in the body. It's meant to move us. It has to go somewhere. So when there's no other option, for discharge, for adaptation, the energy gets directed naturally back at the self. And you see that in a lot of children these days. You see um, misinterpretations of self esteem problems. I'm so stupid, I can't do it. Well, they're frustrated. They're frustrated. Oh, I, I think. Yes. So. I'm going to show a clip. Um, How many of you have seen the film Inside Out? Okay, a great deal of you. Um, Perhaps you've never looked at it quite through this lens, but Gordon assigned it as homework, so I'll I'll start you off with a little teaser, a little clip, um, of the part where Riley, the main character, undergoes her adaptive process. And this movie got it perfectly. in the sense of sadness being the answer, right? I've asked so many parents over the last number of years, and few people are able to identify sadness as being at the heart of adaptation. People always look to joy, right? And this film portrays it perfectly with joy, almost annoyingly so, presenting herself as the answer, right? Look on the bright side. Distraction over here. Um, I think I, you know it's a film, it's made for entertainment. I think true joy is a beautiful rest stop when we you know, process other difficult emotions or that can communicate to us where we're meant to go. Um, I don't think the embodiment of joy that they personify is necessarily uh, so annoying like that, but I do think it's a great personification <laughs> of our society Um, choosing the sort of superficial joy as the answer, right? Look on the bright side, think right, feel right, Um, distraction over here. Ooh, you got a suicidal urge. Well, let's talk about how how great life is and how meaningful it is and uh, it's beautiful and just, you know, get out there in the sunshine, right? We don't want to go to the dark side. We don't want to look at that or mirror that back or hold space for that in others. Um, But inside out... Um, I think does a really good job. So this clip starts out with Riley, the main character, having a number of things going wrong in her life, in her little grade five or whatever it is world. And you see her control panel turning black at the start of the, the clip. And what that, I believe, is meant to symbolize is her emotional system being depressed, and shutting down. So her emotional system is pressing down on emotion, and she's no longer able to feel. It's cutting out the feelings. Um, Sadness is off elsewhere in the brain on this other hiatus. Um, And her system doesn't have access. Her end of the day did not come soon enough. So in comes the defense, shuts the control panel down. It goes completely black. And that's kind of where the clip... Starts. Riley all day what? what was she wearing last do really? you even remember what Riley, Riley. Oh, thank oh we were worried right sick where have you been it's so late uh. Minnesota too. I miss the woods and we took hikes. And the backyard where you used to play. Spring Lake where you learned to skate. All is restored through tears. And I agree with Gordon in his assessment of this as being a movie for teaching adults. And um, I love the quote by William Blake that joy, joy and sorrow are woven fine. And you see that perfect transition as the sadness is fully felt how it naturally transmutes into its opposite. But of course, sadness is deeply vulnerable and it brings us to an inward place, right? And if we don't have the conditions in our environment of safety to be able to go inward and to be vulnerable to that extent, then we can't find those tears, we can't find those tears of adaptation, of futility, um, I think the mystics often have this wisdom. The older ones, right? Um, Rumi, the guesthouse, he says, this being is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond." Right? Or you could say, a guide from within. However you want to perceive that, our emotions, all of them, in their entirety, the whole set of them, it doesn't serve us to parse them out into positive and negative. Right, they are all moving us to different places for good reason, that's what their jobs are. And I think that's what's neat about the film Inside Out is that they portrayed each emotion as having a job, right? And a distinct job, right? And each having value and that if we try to take one of them out, especially sadness, sadness being the mechanism of resilience, being the mechanism of adaptation, then we have defenses that arise to protect us, that are also there (laughs) to protect. But as Gordon mentioned, um, if if we have no end of the day, then we can't function from a place of wholeness. We can't access all of what is available to us within our own nervous system, right? I loved how he ended. He said, healing is in our blood, it's in our bones. We are designed by nature to be able to be resilient and to heal. And we don't need to source that out to mental health professionals. Although, of course, you know, maybe we can find our uh, place of rest um, where we don't have to work for attachment in the arms of a professional, but we don't necessarily have to pay $190 per hour to find a place of rest and to find our tears. Um, Carla McLaren is another person whose work has touched me deeply. Her book is called The Language of Emotions. Um, In it, she shares her story of um, trauma as a young child and how it forced her into an empathic dialogue She calls it an empathic dialogue, meaning that there was a communication between her and the emotions that taught her the wisdom of each emotion, and what it has to offer and what it's about. And she describes empathic communication if you're kind of confused about, well, how do you communicate with an emotion? Think about, for example, if you were to hear a piece of music and you were to start to hear a story unfold and there was no lyrics and there was no words, but you you were told a story by a piece of music. We've all been able to access communication um, without words, right? We talk to our pets. We know what they're saying to us and they know what we're saying to them. We communicate. So we know how to do nonverbal communication. Um, she had these communications um, with... The emotions and was taught um, what each of the emotions have to offer. And I love what she has to say about suicidal urges. She absolutely, as Gordon Neufeld would do as well, normalizes and puts into perspective the suicidal urge and what is what it is driving us to do or be or experience. She says Suicidal urges offer a solution of rest. They are our system's last defense. If you enter the seemingly death-seeking realm of your suicide with clear intent, good skills, and a strong sense of centeredness, you'll find its essence, which is a devout, eternal, death-defying love of life. In its essence, the suicidal urge isn't about death. It's about life. Right? So when I think about how she describes as a last resort, right? Um, My mentors, Marvin Shannon Harwood, they talk about how life or spirit communicates to us, first as a, you know, light whisper, (laughs) then it yells a little louder, and then eventually it hits us with a two by four if we're not listening, right? So some of these really, really strong and powerful emotions, for instance, if you think about terror and panic, Terror and panic, nobody wants to experience those. But if we are in a situation where we need to leave our body, we need something as strong as terror and panic to take us out. If we are in such a defended place and a non-adaptive place, and where we have not had our end of the day, we have not had our tears, we have not had our rest, things are not working at all, we need something as powerful as a suicidal urge to jolt us or give us the energy. I think about what Jennifer talked about, the adrenaline that is needed to take a breath. It's it's kind of like that, right? It's designed to jolt us into life. It's not designed to take us into death. It alarms us, um, and it's meant to. It's meant to alarm us. There's a lot not working if we're in that place. She also says... The suicidal urges don't want to kill you. They really don't. There are a lot of things they'd like to have end, but your life isn't one of them. They actually try to protect you from living in ways that would hurt you if you kept going. Suicidal urges only arise when the difference between who you are in the center of your soul and who you've become in this world of distractions is extreme and irredeemable. In the balance, in the imbalance, death seems to be the only solution. Suicidal urges have a power that can easily overwhelm us, our friends, our family, our support group, and even our therapist or our antidepressants. But if they can be channeled, suicidal urges can bring a complete sense of certainty to long-standing emotional pain or muddled and obscure relationships. Suicidal urges can also be channeled into swift and decisive action in situations where we might otherwise be paralyzed by indecision. The questions for suicidal urges are, what must end now? What can no longer be tolerated in my soul? So her book is very much an interactive tool for coming into, and she does use the word skills, and I, I don't mind it. I know Gordon is you know, harps on the word skills, but I see it as she's teaching and offering skills so that we can gain the capacities. Right, so this is very much uh, a book for adults um, as a personal work type thing. Um, and she, she offers some processes that can help individuals communicate with their emotions. Right, so she says that emotions, um, if we enter that dialogue, that empathic dialogue with what's coming up inside of us, we take up a relationship with the emotions that are moving us, as mature beings. Of course, young children cannot do this. They can, you can take up a relationship with them and that's how they will engage. But as an adult, a mature person with integrative functioning, we can take up a relationship with our emotions and we can ask them and inquire, what must end now? What cannot be tolerated? Why am I being driven and moved in this way? She also says that the idea of talking the suicidal urges away with the beautiful tales of the inherent meaning of life doesn't in any way address its reality. All the sweetness and light are a total lie to the suicidal urge and they only serve to degrade and ignore its message. Suicidal urges require death. The energy of suicide requires a death. That can't be gotten around. But suicidal urges don't seek your death. When I think about what Jennifer was just saying about the initiation of birth, right? When we go through certain things in life, we are reborn, right? We have to die to an old version of ourselves. It can feel like a baptism of fire, but if we're not willing to enter into that, that new relationship with the self that's being reborn, then we're being driven to look at that. Right? And that's what our suicidal urges do. They, they drive us to say, to look at what isn't working, right? This version of yourself that you're operating from based on old defenses and old maladaptive survival mechanisms that were put in place is no longer serving you. So, like all... I think space holders and counselors and social workers and what have you aspire to to be I think if we're trained in a good way I think we aspire to be space holders of reality right and if we try to distract with the best of intentions right distract individuals with suicidal urges or even ourselves right no I should just look on the bright side and not to not to negate all of what we do for our own health, like getting out into the sunshine and going for a run and cutting out sugar or all those things, that's amazing. But if we're not able to meet ourselves or others where we're at, then we we can't hold space for another. Right, if we're saying, look on the bright side, we can't hold space for ourselves. (laughs) We're not honoring our wholeness and all of our parts. Um, the perfect example is, again, from Inside Out, and I think they, they capture this in a nutshell. They capture the essence of what a good listener is, what, what therapy is meant to be, and what we can also do for ourselves in terms of honoring our whole gamut of emotions. And they personify it with um, this character, Bing Bong, who is uh, Riley's imaginary friend in childhood, and Riley is growing up, and she's no longer playing with her imaginary friend Bing Bong, and so Bing Bong is essentially grieving that process of being left behind. And Joy, I'll I'll show the clip here, Joy thinks she has the answer with the distractions, and she's trying, she has an agenda, she's trying to get something out of Bing Bong, and you see sadness coming alongside what is. priming the adaptive process by mirroring back in truth what is what is there. And I think the concept of holding space for each other's and even our own darkness is very similar. We often don't want to go there, we don't want to acknowledge the shadow, we don't want to... Um, we don't... We, we believe that we're fueling suicidal urges by allowing them to exist as they are and entering into a dialogue with them as opposed to distracting. So I'll, I'll, sh- I'll play the clip um, of, of sadness beautifully coming alongside of Bing Bong. Oh, the stuffed animal, hall of fame! My rocket! Wait, Randy and I were still losing that rocket. (laughs) It still has some song power left. Who was your friend who likes to play? No! No, 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 you can't take my rocket to the top. Randy and I go to the moon. I can't be done with me. Hey, it's gonna be okay. We can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? I had a whole trip planned for us. Hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the Tickle Monster. Hey, Bing Bong, look at this. Oh, here's a fun game. You point to the train station and we all go there. Won't that be fun? Come on, let's go to the train station. I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone, forever. Sadness, don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all I had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! It sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. Yeah, it's sad. I'm okay now. Come on. The train station is this way. How did you do that? To work. Hey! There's the train! <laughs> oh, we made it! We're finally gonna get home! Oh no, these faction appears look so similar. Oh. Don't worry about it. Happens all the time. If only we could come alongside of what's not working whether it's in an individual who is experiencing suicidal urges, right? If we can hold space for, you know, wow, what's not working? What is so deeply frustrating in your life that you're having those impulses, right? Or even ourselves to allow ourselves the space and give ourselves permission to look at what's not working, to ask those questions and to come into that relationship with our emotions, with our frustration, with our suicidal urges. Um, Dr. Gordon Neufeld, this is the essence of his resilience work, right? That life is a sine wave and that if we try to scramble back up the other side of that sine wave, we can often get stuck we can get stuck somewhere, we're we're so afraid to go down and, and to go completely into the emotion and that the ways of the universe are such that when we come completely through one emotion, on the other side we find its opposite, right? We find contentment and joy and that's how we get to joy, is not superficially by trying to cultivate it, with positive thinking or what have you, but that we find it on the other side of true adaptation. We find it on the other side of tears, futility of allowing to sink in what doesn't work. And that's how we go from mad to sad, from frustrated to okay and being able to bounce back. And that is the healing power of emotion. I love, I love his description for that, that we are hardwired to heal. That This is built in and it's innate. And that an emotional bounce-back is the automatic and spontaneous outcome of an emotional letdown, that we, we need all of those emotions intact to be fully functioning human beings. Um, Michael Mead said childhood trauma is an initiation done by the wrong person at the wrong time, in the wrong way, with the wrong intentions. And whether we call it trauma with a lowercase T or a capital T, or whether we just call it human normalized woundedness, we all go through woundedness. I think about my mom and her lack of belonging, she was such a sensitive soul that just not fitting in was enough for her to put up the defenses that she did. Um, of course, there are other stories that are, um, describe childhood traumas that are unthinkable. Um, I think that um, understanding the mechanisms of adaptation is a very sort of individual way to look at it. Um, And I like how Dr. Gordon Neufeld and Dr. Gabor Mate talk about the, the greater context of society and how we lack the cultural scripts and rituals and support. And Jennifer, you spoke to that today too about what is wrong with our culture that we're not able to support individuals who are, have gone through trauma or normal, human, typical woundedness that we all experience on the human journey. And Carla McLaren offers a model of Initiation. She says that as humans, we all undergo various forms of initiation, um, that trauma is an initiation, whether we like it or not. Uh, initiation is neither good nor bad, it's just part of the human experience. And if we have become wounded or experienced a trauma, um if we if we get to a point of having mixed feelings and maturation and adulthood at that point we can we can take those initiations and we can transmute i'm getting this from my mentors Marvin Shannon who talk about transmuting our wounds into our sources of power so we we undergo trauma or woundedness one or the other um, and it is an initiation right? And that there are three steps to initiation. Um, And a lot of cultures um, know this and they set up the rituals and the processes um, to support this. So initially, there's an isolation. There's a separation from the known world. There is an ordeal or a brush with death. There's a brush with separation. There's a separation experienced within. Um, and then, there's a recognition or a welcoming back as an initiated person. And in, in tribal initiations, the initiations are expected. They're, the initiates are prepped, um, they're organized, there's a container that's held, there's a beginning and an end point, there's parameters. If we think about play, if we think about therapy, we are held in a container. Um, and there's a celebration. You are now... a a man, you are no longer a child, right? culture used to um, be able to script these things. In trauma, however, it's very disorganized, unexpected, there's no preparation, there's potentially no promise of an end, no container, no community guidance. Um, Trauma is often performed in secret, the traumatic event, and there's no one to tell the victim that they've come out to the other side. Right? So so often, um, individuals who've experienced trauma or woundedness, who become defended as a result of that, end up cycling between steps one and two, and they're not able to get to the other side. So what is it that we lack in our culture that welcomes people back? You know, and I think there, there is a new movement with post-traumatic growth growth. Uh, with that literature that says, "Hey, you're an initiated human being, right? You underwent an initiation. Uh, you went through something, and now you're reborn as a new as a new person um, and as a someone who has something new to offer our culture, our society, our group, um, and our tribe, if you will. So I think of my own journey and how by some miracle or magic of the universe, I was able to connect with some elders that were able to welcome me back into the tribe, so to speak, right? Um, In the photograph, in the left corner are Marvin Shannon and Harwood, and that's the three of us. And we all went, um, as a group, a larger group, went down to Peru, and for a number of years, um, they had a charity called Kamapi Kids, and that came as a result of asking the Caro elders in the Andes there um, what they would like from us as a form of re- reciprocity, because the elders down in Peru were sharing their wisdom and were helping people, Western people, so much so that the community in Canada wanted to give back, and the elders said, well, we would like you to give school supplies to our children. So that was the initial creation of a charity called Kamapi Kids. And there was ongoing trips um, to Peru and some of the elders actually came to Canada as well. So it was sort of this exchange of wisdom and energy that happened for a number of years and is still happening in a different form. The charity no longer exists, but the the relationships are still intact and they've taken sort of new forms. Um, But I had the pleasure of being able to go on one of these trips. And what I didn't expect uh, was that my worlds would collide. So I kind of thought I had this separate world over here that was this spiritual realm, and, and then that I had this other world over here that was this social work attachment theory sort of realm. Um, but what I found was that on this trip to the High Andes Mountains, was that as a result of the charity and the relationships that were intact, we were able to travel to communities that were very remote in the high Andes. So they were not the typical places that a traveler would go. Um, there are many cities such as Lima that are very westernized and modern in Peru and even Cusco is a little off the beaten path, but it's definitely a tourist destination and there's you know, some western sort of um, culture bleeding in there. But these communities in the high Andes were functioning pretty much purely based on attachment-based culture. And it blew me away to actually experience and feel what it felt like to be in a functioning attachment-based culture. And and I'll go back to this slide to explain the other photo, but here are some photos of the trip from Peru and on the bottom you see the feast. Right? When we were all coming and we would come, and we would deliver these satchels of school supplies, and the children would, you know, receive their supplies, and they're so sweet, and they would hug us. And um, which at first I had to kind of question, wait, is this this weird rescuer charity thing? But um, no, that's what the elders said they wanted from us, and <laughs> we're not saving them. But they would, they would prepare the feast, right? all the potatoes, all the corn, the guinea pig, the cheese, and it was just this abundance, right? We're gonna provide more than you could ever, ever want or need at every town. And they would, all the children would have been, I don't know how, what their level of preparation was because what I observed was that they would do these performances for us, but they weren't performance oriented. They weren't polished, they don't, like I think of dance, I used to dance, uh, as a child, and dance, the culture of that was all performance-oriented, right? Paste on a smile, put on some makeup, and perform. And there's nothing wrong with performance, but it's just different. It's different than play. It's, what they were doing was true play. So they were acting out the stories. They had masks that they made out of leather, and they were acting out these archetypal forces and telling their creation stories or whatever they were saying. They had all these cultural stories. And these performances went on and on and on. You know, when you think of a performance, usually we think, you know, get out there a couple minutes, splice the track, get off the stage. No, these things, these children were, you know, on and on and on and they weren't polished at all. And, but it, was, it wasn't about that. It was about their culture and it was about true play. Um, these are some of the elders uh, doing a ceremony, very, very devotional ceremony uh, to Mother Earth. And that also blew me away that they were just just so they were so outside of time, they were so in the rest mode that they just they took the time, and that's one of the performances, the dances they um, They had these rituals intact, and I could feel that, and I I kind of felt excited because Gordon talks a lot, or at least he used to talk a lot about his experience in Provence, where he basically did a case study with an uh, intact attachment-based culture in France, and I thought, I found my Provence, I found my Provence! (laughs) Um, But that's what I mean about culture, right? and Gordon talked about the the grandparents um, stepping in to raise the, the children, that not all parents had to be solely responsible for getting all those pieces together. And I could feel it. I could feel it in these villages that the whole community was looking after the children. And I asked about suicide. I asked my teacher, Marv, about suicide. I said, you've been coming here for years and years and years. What's the rate of suicide? It's unheard of in the high Andes communities. It's unheard of. I don't even know if they have a word in Quechua for mental health issue, (laughs) right? They have preventative ways and practices of taking care of their people, and they take care of each other as a culture, as a society. So go back, and I'll just mention that these are my teachers' teachers. And so I have had the privilege, um, Joe and Josephine Kroshu, I've had the privilege of learning from elders over over a number of years to be able to find a place in which to have ceremony and have ritual. and to find adaptation and rest and what I consider true play. And I truly believe, and I think Ernestina spoke to it beautifully in her presentation yesterday when she described her own journey into those experiences of ceremony and ritual that were very healing. I would cons- I would put that in the realm of true play by definition. And maybe that's not a good word for it. It's kind of a weird label for it, but in terms of... Um, how Dr. Gordon Newfeld talks about and defines true play, and that the essence of therapy and what we seek from a therapist is true play. I would put all of that in that in a similar realm. and I believe that that cultural and community support um, from the elders, from um, ritual, and I mean as a as a white person, I had no cultural support. I had no nobody bringing me into rituals, so I was hungry, I had to look elsewhere in other cultures in order to find that. Um, So this is actually, um, I think we have to wrap up here soon, but this is actually, if you don't um, recognize the reference, it's from a movie called The Shining, where the character Jack uh, is just, he he goes insane basically, and he he is typing over and over and over on a keyboard, or on a um, typewriter, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And I didn't realize the profundity of that um, because I actually used to watch the movie The Shining. I was kind of a dark child. (laughs) I used to watch the movie The Shining over and over, so much so that my mom actually ordered it from the video store because she couldn't find it anywhere else on VHS. And she said, here, I paid $26 for it, which was a very, very high price back then for a VHS tape, but I've ordered it, so that you don't have to rent it anymore. (laughs) And I used to watch The Shining over and over and over as a way to, interestingly enough, play in a once-removed way where I could see the version of my father, which was Jack, and the tension, and Danny, um, the the gifted child, and Wendy, which was actually my mother's name, so the character even had the same name, Wendy, who is the... um, Sort of weak one who's in this domestic violence re- domestic violence-ish sort of relationship with um, her husband. And for me, that was a story. So it was once removed. I could look at it outside of myself, and she she triumphs. She gets away. She takes Danny and the snow cat, and off they go. they, they escape. And so I, I hung on to that as a form of play through story. Through a once removed story outside of myself, and I, and I, that's how I used to process all of that energy as a child. So play, play, which was innate, and I had no consciousness of it. I just thought I was, liked this movie, but that actually carried me through in a large part um, until I could get to the elders. <laughs> so thank you uh, for that, um, Stephen, Stephen King, and. Uh, uh, <laughs> Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick. Um, so I'll end here um, with a reminder of what Dr. Gordon Neufeld says um, about how optimal functioning, what optimal functioning looks like. And it means it's messy, right? We're full of feeling, um, full of play, full of rest. I look at my mother and I, if I put her through this um, assessment tool, was she full of feeling? No, she couldn't afford to be. Was she full of play? I don't remember playing with my mother or, or her having much play inside of her. It was all oriented around the work mode with my father, full of rest. Could she rest and take for granted um, her attachment needs being met? Could she, did she, or did she have to work? She had to work so hard to make herself fit and be the same as and belong to and be loyal to my father that she couldn't just rest and be and take for granted her connections. Um, and get her attachment needs met that way, um, and when I look at my myself as a result of um, as a result of my hierarchical attachments that I've found in later life, um, full of play, yeah, I'm finding my play. I'm finding my play through poetry and other means. um, Full of rest, yes, I've found relationships that I can just truly be myself in. um, And full of feeling, absolutely. Was I ever alarmed to throw this conference? And was I ever excited and grateful? And I was full of all kinds of feelings. Um, So thank you very much for listening, for your kind attention, and for just in general coming to this conference. as you may have noticed, I have just recently started the Parenting Human Beings podcast. It is no, it's on my website at the moment, um, but it's just recently been submitted to iTunes, so it will be available as soon as iTunes does its little um, checking of boxes and makes it available through all of the podcast player apps, but it is on my website, and um, I'm just really delighted um, to be able to offer something to parents or to anyone who cares to listen and, and to be able to um, have created this event and to have undertaken this learning journey with all of you. So thank you so much. <laughs>